remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. You'll find that in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 7. <clears throat> we continue on in the exposition of Mark's Gospel, straight talk about Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning we come to verses six through uh, 5 through 16. Beginning in verse 5, we'll read down through verse 16, the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 7. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, every one, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Jesus was a radical Protestant reformer. Did I get your attention? <laughs> I didn't really say that just for shock value. Rather, we look at it more closely, and it is true. Of course, these three words, radical Protestant reformer, have become emotionally charged and historically conditioned. Uh, even this morning in Sunday school, we talked about uh, the dispute among reformers uh, in the Protestant Reformation about the radical versus the magisterial aspects of reform. But I'm not really talking about the emotional or the historical conditioning of these words. Even if we do feel uneasy and think defensively about hearing this claim about Jesus, because we say, wait a minute, Jesus lived long before the Protestant Reformation, and radical is an instigator and often a subversive agitator for political or social causes. And besides, everyone claims Jesus for their cause. So that just unsettles us for me to say Jesus was a radical Protestant reformer. However, if we consider these words in their basic denotative meaning in a new covenant context, then Jesus does authorize going to the root source. And that's what radical means, to go to the root source. Jesus authorizes our going to the root source of divine truth and testifying first. That's what it means to protest, to testify the first or the ultimate authority, uh, and, and in this instance, of God's holiness. And then restoring, always reforming, restoring to God's way of righteousness by substitutionary atonement for an imputed alien righteousness outside of ourselves. And those things never become passe. We never get past that. We never get past the root source of divine authority and divine truth. We never get past testifying first to God as the ultimate source of holiness. And we never get past restoring always and preaching and declaring 
that there is a substitutionary atonement alone that can answer for our sin and an imputed and alien righteousness that comes from outside of us that we must receive by faith. So we come again, chapter 7, in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Let me remind you of the big picture here in chapter 7. The gospel purifies from the corruption of external man-made religious traditions of self-righteous rules and rituals, clarifying the internal transformation of the soul by saving faith. That's what this chapter is about. Self-righteousness by law works versus God's righteousness by grace faith. And that carries through the whole chapter. So the first portion, which we will hopefully conclude this morning in verses 1 through 16 Jesus preached the law word of God and applied the new covenant gospel by first clarifying that sin is sourced in the human heart. When I say Jesus preached the law word of God, the comprehensive word of God, this morning we'll hear him reference the prophet Isaiah and the Mosaic law. But he is referencing this in terms of man-made rules and rituals about outward washings that cannot purify the corruption of the sin-hardened heart shown in all manner of self-righteousness disguised as religious piety. And beloved, I hope and pray that you know that that's going on today just as it was in Jesus' day. There are all manner of human-oriented, human-made rules and regulations that don't have anything to do with the Word of God or either they're taken out of context or taken out of propriety within Scripture. And they become self-righteous disguises for a... Religious piety. And Jesus cuts through all of that. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 4. That the ritualistic washings in dispute are not about basic hygiene or cleanliness. This is not about washing your hands before you eat as your mama taught you. Did you wash your hands? Show me your hands. Go back and wash them again. Uh, Did that only happen to me? I doubt it. I'm sure some other folks experienced that. That's not what is going on here. In Mark chapter 7. It's about ritualistic hand washing. We pointed that out last week. That even the the terminology that's used. There was some mode of washing their hands. And Jesus and his disciples did not follow that. And so Jesus is confronted by the Jerusalem elite. About the tradition of the elders. And Jesus cuts through this in terms of false beliefs. Of man-made rituals and and rules by modes of external religious practices. They cannot affect personal righteousness or holiness, but that was what was being taught. And so we come and follow up this week, beginning in verse 5, and we break this into two sections. First, in verses 5 through 13, Jesus protests against the tradition of the elders by applying the prophetic word as the source of ultimate truth about worshiping God. This is how serious this is. Jesus is saying, you are vainly worshiping God. Do you get that? Do you get how serious that is? To say that your worship of God is empty and rejected. God will not receive it. We have been lulled to sleep to think that anything we do that we stamp sincerely on, that God is bound to receive it from us. Worship is not about our giving God what we think should make Him happy. It's about how God meets us. God is worthy. That's what the root idea of worship means. So we don't come to God making up our own ideas about worship. And Jesus is protesting against the tradition of the elders by applying Scripture, the prophetic Scripture, 
as the source of ultimate truth about worshiping God. So you can see in verses 5 and following, Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why do your uh, disciples not walk? Why do they not follow? Why don't they live out according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed, that is, with common hands? Now, we talked about that last week and the idea that uh, they disputed this defilement that comes from the common. They're not going to touch common people. I, I told you last week that when they came back from the marketplace, if they had walked on the ground where commoners or Gentiles had walked, if they had maybe brushed up against them with their, uh, uh, when they were in the marketplace jostled by people, they would rush home. And because of that defilement of the commoners, they would go through all kind of washings, bathe themselves from head to toe, and uh, wash everything from uh, their eating utensils to their uh, bed. All kinds of things. All these ritualistic, self-righteous practices, not in terms of seeking God, but in saying they're better than others. And so this is what has Jesus so distraught and upset. And he says that this is not the way to worship God. You cannot worship God by making up your own way to come to God. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29. Um, you'll look at verse 6. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. This, you're vain, you're pretentious, you're empty, you're actors that God sees through. And he quotes from Isaiah 29, 13. And interestingly enough, Jesus quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So, as we point out here, Jesus quotes from this passage in Isaiah 29. And I want you to remember that at the time... There were no in-text markers for verses or for chapters. So Jesus is referencing Isaiah 29 in the divine prophetic oracle that pronounces judgment, woes against Jerusalem, and then promises reformation. Now, I want to encourage you. In a moment, I'm just going to give you a, an overview of uh, Isaiah 29. But remember who came and who was accosting Jesus? The Jerusalem elite. Some of the Pharisees who were hounding Jesus had gotten word back to Jerusalem, to the scribes there, to the religious establishment and to the, to the elite. And they came and they began, as they had previously, to challenge Jesus. And they're challenging him over the traditions of the elders. Just like they did over his healing on the Sabbath or his claiming to have authority to forgive sin. We saw that previously in chapters 2 and 3 in the Gospel of Mark. And so I think it's really interesting that Jesus references Isaiah 29. And they would have been familiar with the whole chapter. This whole chapter in Isaiah 29 is a divine oracle speaking judgment, woes, against the corrupted worship in Israel, in Jerusalem of Isaiah's day. And then God going on and promising reformation in a, in a wonderful way. And I want you to see this. If you look in your study notes, you'll see I've given you an overview of the sections of um, Isaiah 29. And I would encourage you to go and read it this afternoon. In verses 1 through 8 of Isaiah 29, the prophet Isaiah is given this oracle. God will reject the hypocritical worship from altar and feast because of the sins of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is identified here by the name Ariel. And the root meaning 
of this word means to burn on hearth or to burn on altar. And in that section, God says he will turn the city of Jerusalem into his altar for purifying them. And he will use the wicked to bring to repentance the remnant. Now, I will point out to you that in the Hebrew, there is a little bit of a discussion about Ariel. Sometimes it can mean the lion of God. And so we look more closely at the context and we look at the the use of the word. And it seems to me that it's better to fit here and other uh, others as well have pointed out that in this context and in the use in um, Isaiah, uh, the understanding of the root word of to burn on a hearth or to burn on the altar seems to be the better uh, idea of this use of this word here. And I think that's true. And I think it's particularly shown up when God says that he will turn Jerusalem into his Ariel. He will turn it into his altar. That means he will bring judgment upon Jerusalem. And in bringing that judgment upon them, he will purify and he will reform and save the remnant. And then you go on in Isaiah 29 to verses 9 through 16. Uh, From the prophet Isaiah, God says, He will seal up his word by silencing the prophets and the seers. Who were the prophets and the seers of the time? They were the preachers and the teachers. And so God says, you're not going to hear my word. It will be a judgment of woe against you that you will not hear the word of God. People do that voluntarily now, don't they? But God says it's a sign of judgment. And then on in Isaiah 29, verses 17 through 24, again, through the prophet Isaiah, God says he will reform his covenanted people by divine means of reversing guilt and the consequences of their sins, restoring the right worship of God. And that ought to really lift our hearts and thrill us because Jesus says this thing, this problem is about vanity of worshiping God and God doesn't accept that uh, pretentious, hypocritical worship. But the promises of reformation to restore and to return the heart to worship God in truth. And here are the examples that God uses to the prophet Isaiah. He says, I will open the ears of the deaf. Do you remember what happens at the end of Mark chapter 7? I told you, it's awesome. Jesus opens the ears of a deaf man and loosens his tongue from his speech impediment. We're going to talk about that when we get there, how wonderful that is. And here, in connection with the prophet Isaiah, Jesus is demonstrating the powers of God. And he's saying this in connection, not just in humanitarian terms of caring about this man's condition, but also as prophetically symbolic. That this is an act of reformation. God brings back again His Word. And God once again promotes and publicizes His call to reform, to repentance, and to a true worship of God. And Isaiah concludes the oracle with a reference to Abraham. And what did Abraham receive? A righteousness by grace faith. I I challenge you. I'm going to use the strong word. I challenge you to go read Isaiah 29 in the context of Mark 7 uh, this afternoon. So Jesus applies the scriptures from Isaiah for personal accountability, exposing hearts filled up with man-made religious traditions of rituals and rules, but empty of sincere worship authorized by God himself. You can see in verse 9 what Jesus says uh, as he, he went on in applying Uh, Isaiah uh, 29 and verse 8, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things. Many other such things you do. Um, 
And he said uh, to all, uh, it said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions. You feel good about it. You're so filled with hypocrisy and pride, like those to whom uh, Isaiah prophesied the oracle. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, and you all too well are full of yourself. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he says they're just overflowing uh, down at verse 13, making the word of God of no effect through your traditions, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus says this is just one example. He's going to give the example of the fifth commandment and their violation of it and their loophole regulations. And he's saying, this is just one example. You're overflowing with these man-made religious traditions, these rituals and these rules, but you're empty of sincere worship. How do we know that it's sincere worship? It's agreeable to the word of God. We obey. We humble ourselves. We worship God. According to what God has revealed, we don't try to make up our own way. I gave you an example last week, if you'll remember, because we were talking about this whole idea of modes, that we can add modes. And I talked to you about baptism and how it's not the mode of baptism, that water replaces blood. It's not any particular mode, because Jesus was talking about how they had a particular mode. You have to wash your hands with the fist in a certain way. And Jesus was pointing out, no, don't focus on that. It's not about the outward mode. It's about the symbolism that says there's a greater reality. And so I said to you, uh, hey, the Bible talks about oil. Oil is more valuable than water. Can we, can we change baptism from water to oil? It would say it's more special, wouldn't it, if we used oil rather than water. And then I, I told you, well, hey, let's go a step further. Wine. Wine is even more valuable than oil. Wine is used wonderfully in the scriptures for all manner of things. So why don't we baptize in wine? And and with all the the current focus on wine and and people feeling like they're really gaining a superiority culturally because, you know, now we're wine drinkers. If we baptize with wine, that would even make us more special. And then I even said, you know, let's see if we can't connect by dynamic equivalent with the culture in which we live. We live here in the South. Wouldn't it be really special if we baptized with sweet tea? That would just say, look, we're a part of this culture. We're a part of these people. And sweet tea is such a a connection with, you know, Southern culture. Let's baptize in sweet tea. You all know that that's ridiculous. And I I don't know if anyone has ever suggested that. (laughs) Probably. But you see how ridiculous it is. But that's not far off of what Jesus is saying of the man-made traditions here. And you see, it is corrupting to the sincere and pure worship of God. We dare not intrude ourselves and say we can worship God according to our own ideas or imagination. So... Jesus expounds the law word of God from the summary charge of the fifth commandment. He goes on here. He doesn't just leave it with the prophecy of Isaiah. He goes on and calls them to account. Look at what he says in verse 10 and following, referencing the fifth commandment. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Two different references uh, out of the writings of the Pentateuch of, of the law given to Moses. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, 
that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him uh, do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So here's a specific example which uh, Jesus uses where he says that here is the law word of God. Now, we don't limit the law word of God to the Ten Commandments. It's a summary. And here is a summary charge from the Fifth Commandment. And Jesus is using this against the loopholes of traditions by false oaths. He says, you take a false oath. Oh, Corban, I'm sorry, dear father, dear mother. I know you're in you know, destitute. And Jesus calls them to account because of that. And all relates to their not worshiping God in a way that's acceptable. God would not receive their worship. They're hypocrites. They worship in vain. And that ought to set every one of us on edge and to desire to say, Lord, not us. Please, we want to worship you truly. We want to worship you faithfully. That brings us into verses 14 through 16 where Jesus publicly and urgently summons people to hear intently and to understand by putting it together, to connect the dots, to make the connection from his sanctified teaching and truth. So this is what what Jesus calls people to. Look at verses 14 through 16. And when he had called all the multitude to himself, when he had summoned them, he's not just saying, hey, by the way, let me talk to you. There is official uh, activity going on. Jesus uh, officially, he, he um, powerfully and authoritatively summons them. And that's borne out here when he said, Hear me, everyone, and understand. And then in verse 16, now some of your translations don't have verse 16, but verse 16 is attested by the Byzantine majority, which, which I believe is um, uh, you know, the, the better rendering, the better reference. And so I I accept verse 16 based on the Byzantine majority. Jesus says, by way of oath, if anyone has ear to hear, let him hear. So verse 14, hear me everyone and understand. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus solemnizes public preaching, giving an instance of the godly use of oaths here in this very context. You need to understand that this is what's going on here. Jesus isn't just saying, oh, by the way, uh, you people, I want to talk to you a little bit now. No. Jesus is acting in his divine authority. You hear me because I am speaking for God. And so with a much quieter voice and in the deepest humility, I say to you, you hear me because I'm speaking for Christ. Jesus scrubs And I chose that word particularly. Vigorously rubs clean. Remember how the Pharisees, by their traditions, were trying to rub clean their sins, their defilement? Not in sins in reference to God, but the defilement that comes from without. But what does Jesus do? Jesus scrubs philosophical dualism. In any ethical systems or religious forms, clearing away false guilt in order to proclaim the new covenant gospel with universal reach, to stretch out his hands to the common, everyday people, not to draw back, not to isolate himself, not to segregate and and, um, avoid like the Pharisees and the scribes and the self-righteous were doing, 
But Jesus rather opens his arms. He holds out his hands commonly to all, declaring the truth of God's word. And I want you to understand what Jesus is cutting through here, this philosophical dualism. In in all of its forms, it it says that, that sin is in things. Philosophical dualism is carried over into its religious forms to say that, oh, sin is in things. Sin is in this. Sin is in that. That it, it's the external, it's the limited, it's the body, it's the prison house of the soul. It, it's what holds you back, it's what corrupts you. But actually, you can set your spirit free that in the realm of the idea and of the spirit, there you can be pure and you can be free. And that has worked its way into, historically, to much Christian thought. And it is false, it is vain, it is prideful, it is self-righteous. It says that by reductionism, by simply restricting this, restricting that, I won't go there, I won't ever touch that, I will never put that kind of clothing on, I'll never look like that, I'll never do this. By all these restrictions outwardly, you can say, I am more holy, and I'll work my way to God. And you can see that throughout philosophical systems, ethical systems, and religious forms, over and over and over again. It's replete throughout the course of history. And Scripture tells us it's a false way that God will not accept. It breeds hypocrisy and it feeds pride. And that's what Jesus was striking at with the scribes and the Pharisees and why he identified them as the the hypocrites of Isaiah, of Isaiah's prophecy. It wasn't limited to them alone, but but, uh, he applied it to them as we can apply it today. So, as we proclaim the new covenant gospel, we proclaim it with a universal reach. As Jesus publicly preached the comprehensive biblical theology, so we too preach the whole counsel of the word of God. A comprehensive biblical theology engaging divine truth, exposing human deception. The same kind of deception that Jesus was exposing When we preach and expound the word of God, it continues, divine truth continues to expose human deception. It can expose it within the hearts individually. It can expose it publicly against the raging claims and pretenses and false teachings and ideas of a culture. True holiness. When we preach the whole counsel of God, biblical theology... Engaging divine truth and exposing human deception. Then true holiness of God disgraces soul impurity. That's another way of saying we preach that people are sinners that need to be cleansed from their sin. You cannot wash your sins away. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away your sins. And so when we're preaching the true holiness of God and elevating and lifting up and declaring what God has revealed of His attributes and His holiness from the very word of God itself, then souls are disgraced because of their impurity. They're ashamed. And beloved, sinners ought to be ashamed before a holy God. Sin is not something to parade around and be proud of. You don't march in the streets carrying banners. I'm proud of my sin against God. It's hypocrisy. It's self-righteousness. It's vain. And it must be exposed as impure. It's not popular. How about law righteousness? God is holy. 
And his law is holy and just and good. What's the problem? Our sin is the problem. We need to be legally made right with God. Once again, people don't like the Bible because it's so specific. Do you know what the Bible says about the atonement of Christ and about being made right with God in terms of justification? That means be made right with God. It says it must take place legally in contract, in covenant. And you can't do it for yourself. But Jesus did it for you. (laughs) Jesus satisfied the holiness and the righteousness of God. He kept the law perfectly without sin. And you know, he kept the law perfectly without sin in our condition. Because he came subject to the effects of the fall and original sin, but without the corruption. So that's the wonder of Jesus being born of a virgin. It's absolutely the truth of God, and it cannot be dismissed. Because Jesus was born miraculously, providentially, in fulfillment of prophecy and the plan of God. Jesus was born without a human father. Jesus was born without a father from Adam. But he had a true human mother, Mary. And the power of the Holy Spirit came upon her. And the human nature came into existence with the divine, pre-existing, eternal existence of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God. And Jesus was in the womb of the Virgin Mary from the moment of conception. You want to know when life begins? When did the incarnation take place? At the moment of conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary by a miracle of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was born with a condition subject to the ravages of sin, even physical death, but without guilt. So Jesus kept the law perfectly. He never sinned. And Jesus voluntarily substituted in the place of sinners that our sins might be cleansed and we might be made right with God in the contract of salvation, in the covenant of grace, in the redemption that we were bought back with the price of God's own Son given for us, that we might be adopted into the family of God and thereby we might have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You see, that's why we preach forensic justification. That's why we preach that Jesus kept the law and that we must be made right by the law of God convicting us of personal sin guilt. And so Jesus here, in dealing with the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees and their man-made traditions of rituals and rules and modes of external self-righteousness that built them up in pride and arrogance and condescension and they're despising other people. All of that's condemned. And Jesus turns and says, you you better hear me because there's only one way that you can be made right with God. And you need to hear what your sin is about. It's not about false guilt. You see, that's one of the problems With all these systems that are man-made, they try to keep people under guilt. To keep them 
under their power, under the power of guilt. What does the Lord Jesus say to us? If the Son makes you free, you are free truly. God doesn't keep you by the power of guilt. Now, there is real guilt over sin, and the Holy Spirit is a convincer. But there is forgiveness with God. And that forgiveness is proof of His love and the love that a father has for children. So these false, twisting, and uh, deceitful religions of men that try to keep you in, uh, under their power because of guilt, it's a false guilt. Now that can happen on an institutional level. There are whole groups, denominations, and history of churches where they've tried to keep people under false guilt. Jesus was dealing with it here. The scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elite in Jerusalem were trying to keep people under false guilt that they might control them. And so it's far and wide. Historically, today, uh, people try to um, fleece and, and, and uh, deceive people. And they receive truckloads of money by trying to keep people under false guilt. God sees what's going on. In homes... There are these games that are played where people try to keep one another under false guilt. Spouses or parents and children. And it can go either way. False guilt from man-made rules and regulations. And Jesus comes and he says, no, away with this false guilt. The word of God will set you free. God's truth sets you free. And God's truth sets you free in the first instance by identifying what is true guilt. You are truly guilty before God. But in reference to God and His holiness and His revealed Word. And Jesus was manifested to take away our sin. That's what John writes. It's manifest. Have you ever heard that term manifest? Like uh, going on a, um, a, a ship or a plane or something. They have to check off the manifest. What is declared to be on this, what's declared that you're bringing on, on the manifest. Well, John tells us that Jesus was manifest to take away our sin. So he tells us what it is, not false guilt. You need to be freed from false guilt, but you need to be humbled by real guilt. And that real guilt needs to bring you to the foot of the cross. And there you see that Jesus was manifest to take away your sin. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. Clearing away the false guilt. And declaring the good news of God's way of redemption. And we'll see that as we move on through the balance of chapter 7. And then, of course, as we go on through the, the rest of the Gospel of Mark. So remember that Jesus publicly preached the comprehensive biblical theology Engaging divine truth, exposing human deception, true holiness, disgracing soul impurity, and law righteousness. What we mean by that is the forensic justification, that we must be legally declared right with God. And that convinces people of their sin guilt, not false guilt, but what is the real guilt that we have before God. I hope that you will read Isaiah 29 in connection with Jesus' reference and quote here. And that you would pray through that and that you would see, even reading on to the end of Mark chapter 7, the connection there 
with what Jesus promises regarding reformation, the true reformation of restoring the right way of uh, worshiping and knowing God. Our concluding hymn.